Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. I'd like to ask um, Sandra to read our scripture this morning. This morning's reading is from Ruth chapter 1, verses 19 through 22. So the two of them went out on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. The reading of the word of God. We're continuing in Ruth this morning. Let's, uh, let's pray and ask for the Lord's help as we look at this passage. Lord, thank you so much for this text and uh, for bringing us here. And we would uh, just ask you, Lord, to, uh, to open our hearts and our minds to, uh, to hear what you want to say to us today uh, as we work to understand this text, to enter into it, and to let it enter into us. We want to invite your Holy Spirit now to, to treat with us, to deal with us in what is a, a struggle area for many, uh, some, some of us more than others, but... Um, this, this issue of, of bitterness that we see our sister Naomi wrestle with so much. We, it's one we, we need to work on. And so we pray that you will uh, work, use your word this morning to work in us. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of each and every one of our hearts uh, be pleasing in your sight. We ask this in the name of our wonderful Savior, our rock and our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Some of the biggest mistakes we make come from thinking about things the wrong way. It actually happens a lot. We just think about things the wrong way. In fact, it's so common that we have names for these, names for different wrong ways of thinking. For example, maybe you've run into some of this. There's a wrong way of thinking called the, uh, the hindsight bias. Hindsight bias. That's, that's when uh, you, you see things that happened in the past as much more likely to have happened than they actually were at the time. Uh, and to put it more simply, it's kind of the I knew it all along phenomena. Right, something happens, and you, you look at it, and you go, oh, I knew that was going to happen. I knew it all along that it would turn out that way, uh, even though at the time you didn't, you didn't actually know that it was going to come out that way. You, you'll see this one in sports. You see it in sports a lot. Uh, you know, and so uh, the Chiefs, right? The Kansas City Chiefs won the Super Bowl a few months ago. They, they won the Super Bowl, wonderful game, beat the Eagles close to the end of the game. And uh, someone will say, especially a Chiefs fan, will say, I knew it. I knew it all along. I knew we had a great team this year. I knew, I knew back in August that the Chiefs were going to win the Super Bowl. Uh, never mind that hardly anybody was picking the Chiefs to win the Super Bowl. I, I went back and looked at some preseason stories from last year. Everybody was picking the Chargers for some reason. Uh, but, but in hindsight, right, that's the hindsight bias. Once it happens, we look at it and we go, well, of course that's what happened. I knew it all along. Uh, another example of, of wrong ways to think is, is the overconfidence effect. The overconfidence effect. Uh, this one is the tendency to overestimate our own abilities. 
And we all do this. We, we tend to be unrealistically overconfident about what we can actually do and actually accomplish. Uh, for example, I'll give you an example of this one. Uh, 80% of drivers rank themselves in the top 30% in terms of their driving skills. Right? So, so if you ask 100 people who, who drive, have a license, if you ask 100 drivers to rate their own driving skills, 80 of those 100 people will say, I'm in the top 30 Right? That's, that's the, uh, the overconfidence effect, right? 80, out of, uh, you know, 80 of them will say, I'm in the top 30, which means most of you think you're as good a driver as I am. <laughs> there you go. Those are trivial examples, even kind of fun ones, but, but here's why I bring it up. I, I bring it up because the way we think about things really does matter, right? The way we think, what happens up here matters a lot. Uh, that's why you know, you'll see so many verses in Scripture. For example, uh, Romans 12.2 tells us, uh, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Right? Where do we need to be transformed? Up here. We, you know, Jesus, will, we're, we're born again, he transforms our hearts, but we also need to be transformed up here in our minds. First uh, Peter 1.13 says, prepare your minds for action. Prepare your minds for action. The Bible says stuff like that because the way we think has a huge impact on the way we live. That is especially true with what I want to talk about today. We're going to talk about bitterness today, because that's at the heart of this first chapter in Ruth, and I want to use this last paragraph in the chapter to talk about it. It's not like we only see it in these five verses, but, but, but uh, bitterness is a big problem that Naomi's struggling with, and, and it has to do with her thinking, and that's what I want to talk about today. Bitterness is often caused by thinking about things the wrong way. Uh, if you are uh, visiting this morning, we are, we are working through the book of Ruth this summer, and, and last week we, we looked at several things, but one of the things that surfaced in the text last week was the fact that Naomi is bitter. She, she's really uh, dealing with bitterness. In particular, she was bitter at God. Uh, she's angry at the Lord. She's angry at the Lord for the bad things that have happened in her life. And, and I want to zero in on that today. I want to pick up on that bitterness that we just kind of touched on last week, and I want to talk about what caused it. And, and this idea of thinking, right? Because that's what we see. Her bitterness begins with the way she's thinking about her circumstances, her life, and everything around here, around her. And the reason this matters, of course, is that we struggle with the same thing. This isn't just a history lesson about a woman who lived 3,000 years ago. This is our problem, too. Sometimes we make the same mistake. We think about things the wrong way, in an unbiblical way, and, and we end up stuck in bitterness ourselves. So here's what I'd like to do. Uh, I want to finish chapter one this morning. So we're going to finish the first chapter of Ruth, kind of act one, we'll finish. And, and as we wrap up this first part, I want to focus on four wrong ways of thinking. That's going to be our outline this morning. Four wrong ways of thinking. And then I also want to talk about how to fix them. So I'll show you where we see each wrong way of thinking in the text. And then we'll spend just a little bit of time with each one. We can't go too deep on any of them because they come from the rest of Scripture, but f uh, how to fix them. So the wrong way to think and then the right way to think with, with each one of these. So, so let's, let's get into it. Let me show you what I mean. Number one, the first wrong way to think that we see in our text today is to define your identity by your circumstances. That's mistake number one, defining our identity by our circumstances. This is a problem. If, if we come to think that what we do or what we own, or what we accomplish, or, or any of that, if we, if we think those are the things that define us, we are setting ourselves up for bitterness. And this is what Naomi was doing. We see it in, in Naomi here. She, she's defining 
who she is. She's defining her identity on her circumstances. So, so when we left off last week with our story, uh, we, we'd left off with this beautiful commitment that Ruth, her daughter-in-law, makes to Naomi. And so Ruth really, in, in using covenantal language, she, she pledges herself to her, it's really it's just her mother-in-law, but she pledges herself to her mother-in-law in what is a, a binding kind of a covenant. We didn't talk last week about Naomi's response to that. I kind of left that for this week, right? We said we looked at what Ruth said, but we didn't look at what, uh, what Naomi said. Uh, part of the reason we didn't look at what Naomi said is that Naomi didn't say anything. And you might have clocked that in verse uh, 18, uh, last verse from last week's text. And when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said no more. Naomi said no more. So on one level, that, that just means that Naomi stopped arguing. You know, she kind of gave a shrug of her shoulders and said, all right, if you want to come, you can come. Uh, so there's a little bit of kind of just the argument ends. But I think there's a little, uh, a little deeper meaning there. Uh, Naomi stopped talking, right? She stopped talking to her. And I, I think you, you, we might say she gave her the cold shoulder. <clears throat> and they've got days of travel ahead of them still. And, and for most of that travel, Naomi said no more. Right? You know, maybe, maybe the occasional you ever do this, you know, you're kind of maybe in a, fi- in a, in a uh, fight's a strong word, a disagreement with your spouse, and uh, you know, you're eating dinner together, and you, know, you say as little as possible. You know, you'll exchange the courtesies, you know, pass the salt, you know, here. You know. It's like, you know, uh, you, you, you mean, maybe there was some talking. Maybe Naomi said, let's go that way, or, or get some, let's get some water, or whatever. But, but for the most part, where, where verse 18 ends... Ruth makes this beautiful uh, profession of commitment to Naomi, and Naomi's got nothing to say about it. And so I think that also clues us in. It's going to clue us in a little bit to her, her mindset. We are not surprised when we read verses 19 through 22 and how, how uh, she responds when she gets to Bethlehem. So um, I, I wanted to show you a map this morning. I could have done this in one of the earlier sermons, but this is a good place to, to just show a map of these places we're talking about. Um, <clears throat> So we've been talking about Moab, and that's this area over here, and it's uh, right about the Arnon River is the cutoff between uh, Reuben, which is one of the tribes, and Moab, which is a foreign territory. It's not part of Israel. I mentioned that a week or two ago. So they had been living in Moab. We don't know which city, but they were in Moab, kind of rough territory, but um, also has some fertile land in it where, where things will grow. And they've gone back, and, and this is the route you would take. It's, uh, it's the best way to get around the Dead Sea, and it's all very hilly terrain. You actually, when you're going through that valley above the Dead Sea, you're at the lowest point on the earth, right? That's that, 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 uh, that Dead Sea Valley. It's like 1,000 feet below sea level. So, and then you've got to climb up, the long mountain up to get to Jerusalem and Bethlehem, and you can see how Bethlehem, which is where they're headed, is about 8 or 10 miles south of Jerusalem is what we usually say. So as you're thinking about this route, where they, they, you know, they're walking silently for the most part, um, it's about 75 miles, 80 miles maybe, with lots of up and down. It's rugged terrain. We don't know if they traveled all by themselves or if they were part of some caravan. That would have been a, a common thing to do, would be to get, you know, partner with a, a, basically join a caravan and have that protection of a large group of people. We're not told. We're not told any, actually. It's very interesting. Uh, we would find it an interesting detail. Tell me about the trip, right? It sounds like a, an exciting thing. Tell me about the trip. But we don't get anything about the trip. There's nothing about the trip. Instead, we just get the arrival, which is verse 19. Back to my uh, outline here. <clears throat> uh, verse 19 simply says they arrived. They arrived safely. However, they got there. They came to Bethlehem. And when they did, the town was astir. 
the little town of Bethlehem. It's not a big place. Uh, a few hundred people is, is at most. It's a small village in basically every era in biblical history. It's never very large. Uh, the, and the people, when they see these two women come in, there's, it, they're agitated. Actually, another translation uh, has agitated, which is a good translation of the Hebrew word here. There's a buzz. There's a, a murmuring, a, a restless excitement when these two women come into the village. And, and it's interesting, I think, to just kind of think about that, what that would have been like. I, I, would, I would have to think some of the people were happy, right? There must have been some old friends from childhood who, who see Naomi coming, maybe some cousins, and they used to play together at family gatherings and weddings and stuff like that. Uh, you know, and so there's a little bit of a, hey, it's Naomi. There's a little bit of that. Uh, but there's also a lot of people who are, are puzzled and, and even disturbed. And that idea of being disturbed or troubled by something is, is part of this agitated word. Because there's lots of questions, right? When these two women show up, there's lots of questions. Where's Elimelech? Right? The last time uh, these people who remember her saw Naomi, she was married. Where is he? <laughs> right? They didn't have, you know, they didn't read it on the, on the internet that he died or, you know, anything like that. So where is he? Where's Elimelech? Uh, where are your boys? Why did you leave anyway? Why did you leave us like that? You know, why, why, why didn't you come back before now? And what are you doing back now? I mean, all of these questions. And maybe the most pointed question of all, who's that woman with you? <laughs> who's that Moabite woman that you're bringing with you? What's going on here? Uh, and, and so there's all these questions. And then also, I think the text seems to come right out and say, it's been so long, some of the people don't even recognize her. Right? There's a little bit of a, is this really her? <laughs> Right? Can, can this be Naomi? Right? And so there's even a little bit of a sense of some people wondering if it, if, it, if it really is her. My point is there's lots of questions hanging in the air. There's lots of things Naomi might have said when she arrived. Let's look at what she actually says. Let's look at how she engages folks. Verse 20, she came to them, or she said to them, the people of Bethlehem, especially the women of Bethlehem, uh, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? She changes her name. And the question is, why? Why does she do this? Why does she tell them to call her something else? Well, the answer is directly connected to this first point. It's directly connected to this wrong way of thinking. Naomi is defining who she is, based on her circumstances. She's defining her identity on what's happened to her. See, the thing we have to remember and recognize, if we don't know it yet, is that in the, in the biblical world, names, a person's name, meant more to, 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 to their culture than it tends to mean to us. And I don't mean to suggest mean, names are meaningless. I mean, everybody kind of, you know, likes their name or you know, cherishes their own name or their children's names. But, but in their culture, uh, when parents would name their children, it was, it was almost like uh, setting that child's destiny. Like, and they really did understand it that way. They genuinely hoped that the name that they would give to their child would characterize that child's life, that he or she would grow up to in some way manifest that name. And, and sometimes they'd also use family names. I'm not saying every single person did this. But generally speaking, they cared a lot more about a person's, uh, the meaning of a person's name. And when you read other places in Scripture, you see evidence of this in other places. And like I say, there's a little bit of that in our culture, but a lot of times people just kind of go with a family name or a popular name or a celebrity name, even something like that. Uh, but in their culture, it was very much emphasized on the meaning of the name, right? A, a person's name was an essential expression of a person's identity. 
And that helps us understand why this is so important to Naomi to tell them, call me something else. Don't call me Naomi. Naomi in Hebrew means pleasant, pleasant or lovely. As far as Naomi's concerns, there's, there's nothing pleasant or lovely about her. My life's not pleasant. My not, life's not, not uh, lovely. My life is bitter, so call me bitter. That's what Mara means. In Hebrew, the word Mara means bitter. And so she says, call me bitter. She thinks her circumstances define who she is. They name her, and that leaves her bitter. It merges from her bitterness, and it feeds her bitterness. And and the truth of the matter is we we sometimes fall into the same trap. We do the same thing. We we do what she's doing here. We, We define our own identity by our circumstances. And so if we succeed, we are a success. Right? Our success becomes really important to our identity. Right? Or, or if, if, if we're well-known, we are a star or an influencer. Right? I'm an influencer because people know me and, and they listen to things I say. Or, or, uh, or if we achieve our goals, you know, we think of ourselves as important. Look, I'm a, I'm a doer, I'm a mover, I'm a shaker. I, I set out to do this and I did it. I'm an important person that way. Uh, men, we tend to do this with our work. Maybe women do it too, but men, we do it a lot. And then we retire or we, we lose our job and we, everything just kind of collapses on us because we, we are so wrapped up in, in what we do. And, and that's really the problem with this. You say, what's the danger? You know, if you're a success, hey, that's great to be a success. Yeah, that's great to be a success. The problem is circumstances change. Circumstances have a way of changing. Sooner or later, something takes a turn for, its, for the worst. And when that happens, if we've defined ourselves by those circumstances, now we're in trouble. Right? The successful businessman, what is he when his business fails? Well, he's, he's, he's nothing anymore, right? He's, he's well, what's, he's, he's a failure in, in his mind. He may think that way. Or, you know, a, a parent, a mom who, who, who invests so much of her, her identity in her children and them being good children and well-behaved and, and high-performing and, and all the rest of that. Uh, that's all well and good right up until the moment they're not good anymore. What if one of her children rebels or, or walks away from the Lord or, or, or isn't successful, right? We've, we've set ourselves up for, for bitterness. Why? Because we've, we've identified, we've defined our identity by our circumstances, the things that are happening around us. So it's the wrong way of thinking, and we see it here in Naomi. What's the fix? What should we do instead? Well, the Bible's fix is to, defend your, to define your identity in Christ. That's what we're told to do in Scripture again and again and again. The, the, the New Testament especially, but the Old as well, spends so much time telling us to think of ourselves in terms of who we are in and through Jesus Christ. That's what the Scriptures say to do. We're defined by, by what God has done for us in Jesus and what Jesus has done for us, not by our circumstances. And so, so many verses, I'll give you a few. You want to know who you really are if you trust in Jesus? Uh, you are, Ephesians 2.6, raised up with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly realms. Right? You are, Galatians 3.26, all sons and daughters of God through your faith in Christ Jesus. John 15.14, you are my friends, Jesus says. Grab a hold of that one. There's an identity. You are my friends, Jesus says, if you do what I command. Seated with Christ, children of God, friends of of Jesus. What happens in our earthly life, that can't take any of that away. Our circumstances, when they change, can't take any of that away. That's our identity. That and a whole lot more. It makes for a very fruitful study in the New Testament just to look at all those places where we're told, you are, you are this, you are that in Christ Jesus. So, 
Mistake number one, error number one, defining our identity by our circumstances. What should we do instead? We should define our identity in Christ. Number two, uh, the second way, uh, the wrong way to think, is to focus our attention, to focus our eyes and our hearts on the negative. That's a sure recipe for bitterness, right? It's a big, big cause. If you, if you want to be bitter, just focus on all the things that are going wrong and ignore all the things that are going right. That'll work. And that's what Naomi's doing. You, you see it in the way this story is, is presented to us here in chapter 1. She, she, she ignores the good, and there's some good. She ignores the good because she's so, so focused on, on the bad. Uh, look again at verses 20 and 21. Uh, she, she says, uh, and I read them a minute ago, I won't read them again. She says, God has made my life very bitter. God has made my life bitter. And then watch what she does here. I went away full. I was full when I left, but he brought me back empty. I went away full. He brought me back empty. So when I was driving the bus, I was full, right? It's all I, right? When I, was, when I went away full, but now that everything's gone and taken away from me, now the Lord is doing it. He brings me back empty. Very negative, very negative way of thinking. And on multiple layers there of the negativity. It turns out she thinks of herself and how she thinks about God. And for another thing, her memory's a little fuzzy here, isn't it? I went away full. Now, granted, she had a husband and two sons, but, but their bellies were not full. Right? Remember, there was a famine in the land. They were fleeing from a famine. Things were going terrible. She wasn't full when she went away. I don't think she's remembering clearly at this point. So I went away empty. You see that negativism. But then even more immediately, think about Ruth. Ruth is standing right there. What do you mean you've come back empty? What do you mean you've come back empty? This young woman just committed herself to care for Naomi for the rest of her life. Right? She made this beautiful covenant with her there in the, in the previous paragraph. And, and she's a good woman. We've had hints of it already. We'll see it as the book unfolds. She's a woman of integrity. She's wise. She's smart. She's, she's loving. Right? And you've got all this going on. And Naomi, with Ruth standing there next to her, says, I've come back with nothing. I've got nothing. <laughs> I've come back empty, she says. Now again, yes, she's lost a lot. We're going to be sympathetic here. She's gone through a lot of pain, a lot of loss. She's got a lot of grief. But she's not empty. She's not empty. That's not accurate. And so what we see in those details is how her thinking is, is distorted. Again, she's not completely wrong. She's lost a lot. But, but everything is skewed negative. It's all skewed that way. She doesn't see the blessings. She doesn't even remember that Ruth is there. She doesn't acknowledge the harvest. We'll come back to that in a, toward the end. But there's the harvest. You know, the famine is over. The harvest is here. But she, she's not paying attention to any of that. And when it comes to bitterness, that's a dangerous way to live. And, and really what you see with bitterness, and, and if you've ever struggled with this, you maybe know from your own experience, bitterness has a way of, of like snowballing. Right? It's almost like an avalanche. Right? I think this is what, what's going on here with Naomi, just as a human being. This is the story of a human being named Ruth and Boaz and, and Naomi, who we focused on mostly so far. We will switch. Don't worry. We'll get to Ruth and that rest of that. But, but, but Naomi, it's, like it's, it's almost like an avalanche, right? When an avalanche, when the snow's up there on the mountain, it's all kind of, you know, it's, 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 you know it looks a little scary, but it's, it's up there. But when the avalanche gives way, it comes down, and, and the, the, the longer the avalanche goes on, the faster and the worse and the more heavy and the snow and the danger, and it kind of just grows and grows and grows and grows and grows, and God helped the little town at the bottom of the mountain, right? And, and that seems to be what's, what's happened with her, and it can happen to us, when we, when we do that, when we focus all in on that negative stuff, negative builds upon negative, and soon your soul is suffocating in an avalanche of bitterness. 
What's the fix? What does God want us to do instead? Well, the fix in this case is to focus on the good. And, you know, we, we actually sang it before when we were singing, counting every blessing, right? I mean, and, and it, I, don't mean, I don't mean it as trite. I don't mean it as cliche, but it is biblical advice. Turn our eyes. We need to turn our eyes to the good. Uh, this means a couple of things. It means, on the one hand, focusing on those blessings, right? Like we sang, focusing on the Lord's blessings. Uh, Naomi, and, and again, she's in a hurting place. I'm sympathetic to her, but she's, she's not able to look and not willing at this point in the story to look at the harvest that's come, this woman who, who loves her so much, this loving daughter-in-law. And, and what, we, what we need to do is to get to a place to train ourselves to say yes, right? So we're not talking about sticking our heads in the sand. We need to face reality. Christians are realists. We really are. We are realists about the world more so than, than most others because we acknowledge the wickedness. We acknowledge the pain. We acknowledge the evil. And so we say, yes, this and this are going wrong, but this and this and this are going right. And that's where I'm going to put my focus. And so we focus on those blessings, and then we should also train ourselves to focus on, on the Word, to focus on the Lord's Word. Because the truth is, counting the blessings only does get us so far. What we really need is the truth. We need the truth in here changing us from the inside out. And so focusing on the, the good things, you know, I think of you know, Philippians 4, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's admirable, think upon these things, Paul says. You think of uh, Colossians 3, 2, set your minds on things above, not on things below. Not because we're going to start ignoring and not doing the things below, but because that's where our hope is. That's where everything is invested. And so, and so that's how we do it. We focus on the Lord and what he's doing, and, and he will work in our hearts. He'll work in our hearts, just like he's going to work in Naomi's heart in this book. He's going to work to take away that bitterness. That, that emphasis on the Lord leads us to the third way of, of thinking, wrong way of thinking we need to talk about. And the third one is to uh, believe false things about the Lord. All right, so that's error number three, believing false things about the Lord. Uh, this is a big one, especially for those of us who are believers, but I suppose a non-believer could lapse into the same thing. But, but just believing things about God that are not true. Right? And so that might be uh, you know, projecting onto God uh, ways we think, he, we think he should be. A lot of times it'll be that. Like, we think God should do this because that's what I think a God should do. That would make him a good God if he did this. And, and then he doesn't do it. And, and what's happened? We're, we're set up for bitterness. Oh, he didn't do what I wanted him to do. And so we, we feel bitter. And I think Naomi's laboring under some of that, right? And then also, and then sometimes, and this is, she commits this one too, is we just, uh, we just have wrong ideas about God and that are negative ideas. And we definitely see Naomi doing that. She's, she's laboring under uh, s- several false ideas about the Lord. I wanted to point out the two biggest examples. The first of them is that she thinks God is attacking her. Right? She just thinks the Lord is after her. Right? God is after her. He's attacking her. And we actually talked about this a little bit last week. Um, she says it again in this verse. It's in verse 21. She says, the Lord has testified against me. Uh, another translation says, he has afflicted me. I think that might be the NIV. He's afflicted me. He's attacked me. That's, that's, the, that's the sense of this idea of he testified. He came against me. She says something very similar in verse 13. That's why we talked about it last week. The Lord's hand has gone out against me, she said. He's given me a, a slap is kind of the, the idea. The Lord's hand has gone out against me. And so it's interesting what you see here because this, we do the same thing that Naomi does here. She's got some truth mixed in with some, some not truth, some stuff that's not true, some false stuff. So on the one hand, she actually has a very high view of God's sovereignty. She really does. She has a very high view of the power and the sovereignty of God. She knows 
that God is actively at work in the world and that he's actively at work in her life too. She knows it. But there's also this colossal distortion because she's sure that he means her bad, right? She's assigning bad motives to the God who scripture reveals is, is perfectly good. And so she's got some truth. God is sovereign, but she's also got some lies. God is, God is not good. He's not good. Uh, the other false idea, and it's really just kind of the same one from a different angle, uh, has to do with the names, right? The names she uses here for God. If you, if you look at the text, I told you a minute ago that, uh, a few minutes ago, that uh, Naomi changes her name, right? She says, call me, call me Mara now, because Mara means bitter, and my life is bitter, so call me bitter. It's interesting, nobody ever calls her bitter in the book, <laughs> but, uh, but, but she kind of comes and she, it's almost like they like kind of say, well, I don't know if I'm going to go there with you, but, but this is how she thinks about herself, call me bitter, she says, and so the name has meaning. The same thing is true about the names she uses for God. So the name she uses for herself tells us what she thinks about herself. The names she uses for God tells us what she thinks about God. And she actually, she names God four times in this little speech she gives. In today's passage, she names God four times, and she uses two different names. So two times she calls him Yahweh, and they're both in verse 21. If you've got your Bible open, you can just look at verse 21, uh, and it's capital L-O-R-D, kind of like I put it up here. That's when you see that in your Bibles, uh, the, the small caps, that's the transliteration of Yahweh, the name of God. And so that's God's personal name that he, reve- he used to reveal himself to, his, to the Israelites, to his people. So she's got that, right? And that's good. That's God's covenantal name. So she, she understands that. The other two times she calls God by name, she calls him Shaddai. Shaddai. And most of our Bibles are going to translate that as Almighty or the Almighty. So it'll say something like the Almighty. And that's what this text, the translation I read this morning is. Uh, verse 20, once in verse 20, and once again in verse 21, she calls him uh, the Almighty. She calls him Shaddai. Now, don't let Amy Grant misread you, uh, mislead you on this one. Uh, some of us who are, who are old will remember a lovely song by Amy Grant, El Shaddai. Um, if you have never heard Amy Grant's El Shaddai, go look it up on YouTube. It's, it's a lovely song, and you can do a little, kind of, you understand your parents a little better. Uh, El Shaddai, a beautiful song. Amy Grant uh, kind of made it popular. I don't think she wrote it, but, um, and we hear, so when I tell you that Naomi calls God Shaddai, you're like, oh, that's great, right? But here's the thing. The El part isn't there. El Shaddai is, El is God, Shaddai is mighty, or almighty. So El Shaddai is God Almighty, and it's one of the personal names in the scriptures used to emphasize God, to emphasize the Lord and his power specifically. El Shaddai, that's wonderful, right? El Shaddai is great. Shaddai is just the Almighty. And here's the problem with that. She doesn't have the El. Here's why this is a problem. We know from, uh, what's the term we use? Extra biblical evidence that during the time of Judges, Shaddai was actually a more generic term. It was a more generic term. It was much closer to how people in our culture will use higher power, right? Or you'll be in a conversation with someone and they'll say God, but you, you know, as they talk some more, you come to realize they don't mean, they're not talking about the same God you're talking about, right? You ever been in one of those, those situations where somebody's talking about God and then they start saying, you know, they, you know, the God this, the God that, and then they'll say she, and you're like, whoa, 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 where'd we go? Uh, you know, we weren't talking about the same God, even though we were using the same word. We were using the word God. Shaddai functioned that way in the period of the judges. Uh, I'll use the technical description here. Shaddai was a generic Syrophoenician name for the divine force. So the Canaanites around them, they also used the word Shaddai. And for them, Shaddai was, it was a way to describe the powerful God being that was out there somewhere. And the Shaddai being was 
benevolent sometimes. Sometimes Shaddai would do good things for people, but Shaddai was also malicious, capricious. Sometimes Shaddai would work against people and harm them. That's Naomi's view of God at this point. Right, I'm probably going to make a few people uncomfortable. She comes around at the end of the book, but at this point, you do not want Naomi teaching your Sunday school class. She is not in a good place in terms of how she's thinking about God. Because here's how I would summarize her thinking at this point. And remember, she just spent 10 years in Moab, a pagan nation, right? So she was, I think she's been influenced by her time in Moab, right? Ruth, is, Ruth the Moabitess is a better Christian than Naomi the Jewess is, right? Or better, a better believer. Because what you've got going with Naomi here is it's part truth, Yahweh, and it's part regional folk religion, Shaddai. And so she knows God's personal name, but she also thinks his character is suspect. He's more like Shaddai than he is like Jehovah of Mount Sinai, right? So she, he's powerful. Oh yeah, he's powerful, but she's not so sure he's good. And you could even make the case you might have, not, not certain of this, but you might even have a little universalism stirred in here, right? Just a little bit of universalism. Yahweh, Shaddai, it's all the same, right? Which we see a lot in our world, right? Jesus, Allah, Buddha, it's all the same, right? It's a little, little bit of that going here, maybe in the way Naomi is approaching to God, is approaching God. And this, this, these distorted ideas she has about the true God, it's hurting her. It's hurting her, right? She, she can't trust God. <laughs> she can't trust him. She's in no position to trust him because she doesn't believe in her heart of hearts that he's trustworthy. She's got too much other junk, too much other junk from the, the pagan world around her, too much other stuff in her head, and, and it's leading to bitterness. And so she's got these false things. She's allowed false things to mix in with the true things she knows about God. We can fall into the same trap, right? Sometimes that happens to us for, for all sorts of reasons. We end up with, with false things creeping into our own thinking about God. And, 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 and like, like Naomi, there's truth mixed in with the bunch, right? So we end up with truth and falseness. And, we, and they kind of, there's a technical term for it. It's syncretism. We mix we mix the truth and the falseness. And, and, and so we believe the truth, right? So, so sometimes this happens to us. We believe the truth about Jesus. We believe what the Bible says. We believe how salvation works and the substitutionary atonement and salvation by faith alone. We believe all that good stuff. But then we also stir in some, some prosperity gospel. Somewhere we pick up the idea that God wants us to be rich and successful in this world, that that's his, his real agenda. He wants us to be healthy and happy and wise which is more Ben Franklin than Jesus. But, but we get this idea in our heads that that's what God wants for us. And, and it seems to us, you know, if things are going well, that works great. <laughs> but then you lose your job or the savings get wiped out and the downturn or the crop fails or we get some awful disease or even worse, our children, one of our kids gets some awful disease. And, and when that happens, if we've got all those false ideas, they can't hold us up anymore and they collapse. And what are you left with? If you were standing on a, on a collapsible foundation, what you're left with is disappointment and bitterness. Or, uh, you know, here's another one that's maybe a little more contemporary, you know, prosperity gospel we've been beating up on for, for decades. Sometimes we stir in a little Christian nationalism, right? We stir in a little Christian nationalism, and so we believe the truth about Jesus, who he is, how his salvation works, substitutionary atonement, uh, salvation by faith in Christ alone. But then we add in the idea, and I don't know where we get it, but we add in the idea that the nation we, should li we live in should be a Christian nation, because we live in it. Right? It should be a Christian nation. And more than that, more than just kind of wishing we lived in a Christian nation, we start to live and act and, and do everything as if, as if it's all contingent on us. And so if we do the right thing, 
and we support the right candidate and we win the right elections, we can make it, right? If you haven't run into this, pay, watch out for it. If we do the right things, we can make this a Christian nation. And it sounds so wonderful. I mean, gosh, wouldn't it be wonderful if it worked that way? <laughs> Except then the, the right candidate we supported loses, or the Supreme Court rules against what the Bible says. And, or with every passing year, it seems, you know, the nation seems to get more wicked rather than more Christian. And, and you, you have these expectations that if we would just pray harder and have more prayer meetings and, and vote better and mobilize better, if we would just do all that, it would go the way it does. And then we try real hard and it doesn't go the way we want it. Instead, it gets more wicked and they make Pride Month the biggest thing in the world. And whatever else, whatever it is that troubles you personally, we look at all that and we're left with What? We're left with a God who didn't come through for us, just like Naomi. And we're left with bitterness. And so, again, do you see what I mean? This is all this truth, oh, so much truth, but then we stir in some of, the, some of the false stuff that doesn't come from Scripture. It comes from someplace else, and it leaves us disappointed and, and, and bitter. What's the fix? What's the fix on this one? The fix is to believe what the Bible says, right? That's why we're a people of this book. It's so important to believe what the Bible says about the Lord. And so we need to get into the Word. We need to let God show us who He is, right? Not, not the world, not our own ideas, not our own wishes of what God would, we wish God would do, but what does the Bible say about God, His character, how He acts in the world, what His priorities are, and so on. That's actually what's going to happen with Naomi. And we'll see, the Lord is, this is a redemptive story for sure. The first chapter's a little rough, but the, it's all uphill from here or downhill. It's all, it's all, it's a, it's a very beautiful story. And so the Lord's going to use different things to correct her thinking. He's going to heal her bitterness. And he, he'll do the same thing for us as we get into his word. He wants to teach us who he is. And, and, and we just need to go to him. He's the one who, who defines that for us. So the fix is to believe what the Lord says about the Lord, not what the world says about the Lord. All that brings us to the last one, the last wrong way of thinking. Uh, Here's the mistake we make. Sometimes we close the book too soon. The fourth error of thinking is to close the book too soon. Sometimes in our pain and in our bitterness, and Naomi's got it. We've talked about that. Sometimes when we feel like she does, we make the mistake of giving up on our own lives before God himself is done. We close the book when he still has more to say. I think that's how Naomi is when she arrives back in Bethlehem. That's what she's thinking. This is the end of her story, right? This is it for for Naomi. Her husband is dead. Her sons are dead. She's got no prospect of remarrying. She talked about that in the previous section. All that's left now, right? Husband dead, son's dead, no grandkids. All that's left is for her to die. And I really wonder if that isn't why she's come back to Bethlehem. I mean, we're told it's because there's food there again, but I wonder if she hasn't just come home to die. If I, I wonder if, if Naomi were writing this book, uh, it would end right there in verse 21, right? That would be the end of Ruth. It would be a very short book, and we'd probably call it Naomi, all right? The Almighty brought calamity upon me, and nobody lived happily ever after. That, that would be her, her, the book she'd write. What she's forgotten is that the divine author is not done. And so we need to, let, we need to do what she's going to have to do from circumstances. We need to let the Lord finish our stories. Uh, it doesn't end. Chapter 1 doesn't end with verse 21. It actually ends with verse 22. And you could have put verse 22 in the next chapter because the chapter, uh, chapter breaks are all added later. But I, it's, I think it's God's providence that this chapter ends with verse 22 because it's, it reminds us God's not done yet. 
he's got more to say, right? So that's that verse 22. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Just compare. Verse 1, there was a famine in the land. So bad they had to flee to a foreign country. Verse 22, the land is bursting with barley, right? It's ready to be harvested. What, 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 a, what a wonderful change. Uh, God's not done yet. Verse 1, Naomi, Naomi's living in a foreign land, right? She's in a territory of a people that are not friendly to her own people. Now she's back where she belongs. Verse 22, she's back where she belongs. Verse 5, remember verse 5, Naomi was desolate, desolate, alone. Everybody she cared about was gone. Even her own identity was stripped away as a woman in that ancient culture. Now she's got Ruth. Verse 22 emphasizes that. She's got this wonderful person, Ruth, by her side who's going to become so important to her future. That message of that last verse is so clear. We're not done yet, Naomi. We're not done. Don't close the book. Don't put the end at the end of the story just yet. God's not done. And sometimes we're, we're tempted to fall into the same kind of thinking. We, we think God is done when he's not done yet. We close the book on our own lives too soon. We take the, the trouble we're facing now uh, and we treat it like it's the end of our story. But that's not how it works. That's not how it works with the Lord. We're not done until he takes us home. And he has lots he wants to do. The Lord wants to take those disappointments, those losses, those areas of grief, those broken dreams, and he wants to build something glorious for his kingdom which is exactly what he's going to do with, with the pain and the disappointment and the loss that, that Naomi and Ruth, for that matter, have experienced. That's what he wants to do. He wants to use that layoff, that failure, whatever it is, to open new doors, new doors that we would have never looked for. She did not go back to get what's going to happen in the, the next three chapters, but the Lord had a plan. That's what he did for her, and if we trust in him, that's what he'll do for us.